Amen. Thank you, Matt. We are so blessed at Plum Creek to have such a rich uh, depth of worship leaders, Julie and uh, uh, Kelsey, and then uh, Mike and Bonnie and Matt now and others. If you're interested in, in helping serve on the worship team, please see Mike, and he'd be glad to, uh, to put you in the rotation. But we are certainly uh, blessed. So I'm excited today for a lot of reasons, most of all because we're going to continue our look at the coming kingdom and how a better day is coming. But uh, if you know me very well at all, you know I'm, I'm also excited because there's a big game today, tonight, Sunday night, Cowboys and Eagles. So I thought I'd start with a, an Eagles joke. Do you have any Eagles fans in here? If so, you might want to step out. So old Tony was uh, down in Philly, was a big Philadelphia Eagles fan, and he was watching the game with a buddy of his, and it was the Cowboys versus the Eagles, and the Cowboys won on a last-second uh, play as they typically do. And uh, anyway, uh, his friend was so stunned by it that his friend had a heart attack. So Tony called 911. And uh, 911 said, what's the problem? He said, I think my friend's having a heart attack. They said, where do you live? He said, 123 Eucalyptus Street. The 911 operator said, uh, can you spell that? And Tony paused for a minute and said, well, what if I drag him over to Oak Street? Can you come get him there? So there you go. That's the Philly, Philly fans for you. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly shove, as I like to call it. So, Well, you know, uh, we started a series last week that uh, has just been so encouraging to me as I reviewed uh, a number of the characteristics of the coming kingdom. And I was thinking about all the ways that we as believers today in the present age uh, mark the moment and celebrate the birth of our Savior this time of year, even walking into our our church in the lobby here, you know, we see the little manger scene, we see the decorations, we see the little baby uh, Jesus. And you know, I was thinking about that plastic baby, and as beautiful and sentimental and meaningful as all of these decorations are, and as much as they turn our hearts heavenward toward the Savior, they really all pale in comparison to what it will be like someday when we see Jesus face to face, when Christ comes back to make all things new, everything we create as fallen mankind to celebrate and remember God's amazing gift is really insufficient when you really stop and think about it to express the wonderment and the glory that is to come. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this was uh, the fourth letter that he wrote. Remember, he was on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus where he spent three years, almost three years during his third missionary journey. And he writes this letter to the believers in Corinth. And he says, As it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. A little bit later, that was in the early spring of 56 AD, by the winter of that same year, on the same journey, he found himself in that city of Corinth, where he had previously written them a letter, and he's writing a letter to the Romans, Roman uh, believers. And he says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, all of creation, is groaning eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. And the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah speak of this time to come when he writes, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people 
for a joy. Not much rejoicing going on in Jerusalem these days, is there? But the Bible speaks of a coming time, a coming day, when there will be incredible rejoicing. And then, of course, last week we looked at uh, the end of the Bible, God's revelation to mankind, where he describes this coming kingdom. And he says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then he said, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So we've been over the last several weeks talking about Israel and Israel and God's plan of the ages and how what's happening in Israel today is setting the stage for the fulfillment of prophecy really like, like never before. This battle uh, that Hamas launched on October 7th is the worst uh, attack on Israel in modern history since they became a nation again in 1948. And uh, we looked at Zechariah. For the sake of time, I won't reread the text that we read last week, but just uh, know that Zechariah, the name in Hebrew, means Yahweh remembers. And Zechariah and his contemporary Haggai, both of, of whom are Old Testament prophets, worked together to remind the, the exilic community as they returned from exile that God remembers his covenant, that God has not forsaken them. Things are going to get better. It was a gloomy time for them. Uh, the temple had been rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel, but still expectations were at an all-time low. There was still a lot of work to be done. By this time, uh, you know, 100 years or more since the northern kingdom was destroyed when Samaria was defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And then, of course, Jerusalem was ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., here it is, you know, 480 B.C. roughly, and, and they'd given up hope in the Messianic uh, promise. They knew it. They knew it better than, than we do today because they'd studied the Holy Scriptures. They knew what God had promised to Abraham. They knew what God had intimated way back in Genesis 3 uh, when he talked about uh, how Satan would be defeated by the seed of the woman someday. But yet uh, they, their hope was, was low. Not unlike, as we said last week, many people today. Here we are, 2,000 years after Christ's death and resurrection, and our expectation of the soon coming of the Lord uh, is pushed to the back burner. It's not something we think about as often as we should. We often uh, think maybe he's forgotten us or given up hope. Maybe he's not going to come back. Maybe we misunderstood the scriptures. That's what the early church did. By the time you get to the 3rd and 4th centuries, people like Origen and Augustine, uh, great fathers as they were, nevertheless uh, kind of put us off in a wrong direction by suggesting that maybe we misunderstood the plain, normal teaching of the promises of the Old Testament. And in fact, maybe Christ isn't going to come back, but nothing could be further from the truth. So Zechariah talks about the, the promised Messianic kingdom and how it will be fulfilled. We said last week that Zechariah contains more Messianic prophecies than every other Old Testament book except Isaiah. And it's only 14 chapters. And we looked at several of those Messianic prophecies last week. Uh, the outline of Zechariah is pretty simple. Two sections. Uh, it's 14 chapters. The first eight chapters deal with the returning exiles in his day and calling them to national repentance. And then the last half of his prophecy, chapters 9 to 14, all point to the distant future the time of the king's coming and, and the day of the Lord, uh, which is what we're talking about this morning. So we looked last week at the certainty of the kingdom, and today we're going to focus 
on the characteristics and the challenge of the kingdom. But first, let's do a quick review of the certainty of the kingdom. There can be no doubt that the Old Testament and New Testament alike guarantee us that a kingdom is coming. Zechariah, in our text, said, The Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. That has not happened. We have not ever seen a time when globally the the world is worshiping a king. Now, this cannot be talking in context about some type of spiritual, metaphorical, symbolic kingdom, because indeed the Lord God spiritually is king over the whole creation at all times, you know, anyway. This would be a meaningless prophecy. It would be more a statement of fact than it would be a prophecy. But in the context, it's a prophecy of a literal earthly king that would come back, the promised Messiah, just as David was promised uh, in 2 Samuel 7, and rule over the whole earth. So we talked about God's plan of the ages and how we're living right now in the church age, or what the Bible calls the last days. There's going to be a transitional time after the rapture when Daniel's 490-year plan that we talked about a few weeks ago is going to come to fulfillment. The final seven years will take place, leading up and climaxing uh, with the return of Christ himself to usher in the kingdom, and then we will enter the long-awaited promised kingdom. And any uh, Bible teacher or Bible uh, commentary or any teaching that you come across that teaches anything other than a literal earthly kingdom of Christ, you need to set it aside. It's not teaching sound doctrine. The plain teaching of Scripture, as we looked at last week, makes it clear the kingdom is coming. If we zoom in on the end times, you can see on this chart the church age is over there on the left, the time of of, uh, post-resurrection, pre-rapture, that age in which we live right now, uh, that the Bible calls a mystery, something previously unforetold that is now Uh, has now been revealed through Ephesians chapter 3. But at some point after the rapture, we're going to see the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that, you'll see the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. And then we will enter into this fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, the kingdom age. And this kingdom age, as we're going to see this morning, is going to have two phases as represented on my chart here. The first phase is the millennial phase on the old earth, the earth that we currently Uh, reside on, but it's going to continue in perpetuity in the new heavens and the new earth when God destroys this old earth uh, sold under sin and recreates it in sinless perfection. So the kingdom is absolutely a certainty. We talked about how David was promised that his throne would be established forever. That has not happened yet. We talked about how Solomon said, all kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him. That has not happened yet. Anybody who thinks all the kings on the earth are worshiping uh, Jesus Christ is, you know, reading a different newspaper uh, than what I'm reading, that's for sure. Isaiah the prophet talked about a time when the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatted calf together. A child will lead them. That certainly is not what we see around us today. He goes on to say, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. There are a lot of people that don't know the Lord today, but when Christ comes back, everyone on earth, from the least to the greatest, will know the Lord. We looked at Psalm 2 and King David writing about how the kings of the earth and the rulers are conspiring together with Satan to try to take over the world and wrest control of it away from God Almighty and usher in a one-world political, religious, and economic system. But God just laughs at them, we said, because He knows from His perspective He's already set his anointed, his eternal son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the throne. He's already as good as there, even though he hasn't come back yet in physical form to take it. 
And so he says, today I have begotten you. What's today? Remember we talked about that last week. It's talking about the second coming. The day when Christ comes back and God the Father gives him the nations for his inheritance and the ends of the earth for his possession. We don't see Christ reigning on the throne today with all of the nations serving him and his kingdom boundless over the whole earth. We talked about how Revelation chapter 19 at the second coming of Christ quotes this verse here in Psalm chapter 2 about Christ reigning with a rod of iron. And then we talked about how the kings of the earth that are conspiring with Satan would do well to repent and bow down and worship the Lord God Almighty because one day they're going to. They're going to worship the Son whether they want to or not. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And so they ought to submit to Him and show their respect and submission to Him. That's what kiss the Son means in the ancient Near East. It's to kiss the ring of a leader and show your obedience uh, to Him. Then we come to the New Testament and we see the certainty of the kingdom continuing to be emphasized. When Gabriel mentions to Mary that she's carrying the Christ child, he told her that, his, that he will take the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. That certainly has not happened yet. And Jesus Christ himself, just a couple of days before he was betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified and laid in a borrowed tomb only to resurrect on the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, just a couple of days before all that, he said, when the Son of Man comes back in all of His glory, then He will sit on His throne. He has not come back yet, and He has not taken the throne yet. So clearly the Bible, from cover to cover, reiterates the certainty of the kingdom. It may be lost on most believers today who have fallen prey to an amillennial replacement theology type teaching. It certainly is lost on unbelievers who don't even know the Lord Jesus and don't know the, the promises of Scripture. But to those who study the Bible and know the Bible, we ought to take comfort in knowing that a better day is coming. And to encourage us in the midst of this trying time such as it is, the time when the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, the prince of the power of the air is running, wreaking havoc on the world. There's so much deception, so much heartache, so much evil all around us. Let's take a look at some of the characteristics of that coming kingdom and, and just really tangibly mentally think about what it will be like according to scripture when Christ comes back. So as I mentioned, the kingdom is going to have two phases. The first phase is on this old earth and the second phase in eternity will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And sometimes the Old Testament prophets in the same way that they sort of conflated the first and second advents of Christ, conflate the millennial aspect and the eternal aspect of the coming kingdom. Uh, so you know, as we look at these prophecies, some of them relate to the millennial phase and some of them to the eternal phase, but they all speak of a glorious day and a glorious age when Christ comes back. So let's start with this one. Uh, the boundaries of Israel will be expanded. Uh, Isaiah the prophet put it this way, you have increased the nation, talking about when Christ comes back, you have increased the nation, you are glorified. Notice you have expanded all the borders of the land. This goes back to the promise in Genesis 15 that we talked about a few weeks ago, the land boundaries, uh, the land covenant, that unconditional covenant where God explains the, the boundaries of the kingdom for Israel. Uh, and as you see on the chart here in blue, that represents the borders of the promised land according to Genesis 15. In red, you see modern day Israel, uh, nowhere near what Israel has been promised. So they're over there fighting over a little section of the Gaza Strip, and that's in the grand scheme of things, almost irrelevant. I and mean, it's not irrelevant today to the people fighting and sacrificing and suffering. Uh, but in God's plan of the ages, Israel's kingdom 
kind of the capital nation of the global world of peace and righteousness that Christ will reign over is much bigger than that. And to this day, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land that's been promised to them. They've had their rights to it in Joshua's day, but they've never fully uh, inhabited all of it. And another chart that I showed back when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is representing Israel there in red. You can barely even see it on the screen. Surrounded by a sea of Islam. All of those green nations are Islamic. And yet, that's not enough for them. They still want that tiny little piece of real estate uh, to complete their domination. Why can't they be satisfied with what they've got? I mean, it's got to be 99% of the, of the region there in green. Why do they still need that last little piece? Well, I'll tell you what, what it's not about. It's not about just a little piece of real estate. It's about the holy land, God Almighty's land, and he is jealous for his land. And no matter how hard Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel's other enemies try, that land will never be taken away from them. It's not going to happen because it's God's chosen nation. And that's why Christ is going to come back in that little spot in red there on the Mount of Olives to inaugurate the kingdom and rule and reign over the Messianic kingdom. We're going to see topographical changes when that happens. Zechariah in chapter 14 talks about how the Mount of Olives will be split in two. We see other topographical changes mentioned in passages like Ezekiel 47 and also in Isaiah chapter 2. But it's going to be such an earth-shattering moment that even after all of the devastation of the seven-year tribulation, when Christ comes back, it will shake the earth like never before. Jerusalem at that time will become the center of the world's worship. Isaiah chapter 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Not with tanks and missiles and guns and, and warriors, but to come and worship the Lord. Listen to verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Remember, Jacob is Israel. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In Zechariah chapter 8, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. You know, today, among Bible-believing Christians, there. There's a great outcry, as there should be, of support for Israel. It's devastating what's happening to them. We ought to be supporting Israel. We know it's God's chosen nation. And notwithstanding the fact that their secular Jewish leaders are not all saved, they're not all Bible-believing Christians, and frankly, some of them are allying with the enemy, as we've seen throughout Israel's history. The Old Testament is full of examples of kings of Israel that were not serving in the best interest of the nation in their day, and they were aligning themselves with other enemy nations. I get that. I get that there are uh, rogue elements within Israel's leadership, uh, the secular Jews, uh, that are not doing what's in the best interest of Israel. But nevertheless, we as believers, knowing God's plan for Israel, ought to support Israel unequivocally and passionately, and our zeal ought to be bubbling over. But think about this. However zealous we are for God's people Israel and how much we pray for the peace of Israel, Psalm 122, it pales in comparison to the zeal of God Almighty for his chosen nation. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. Think about that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
We live in a day when there is no absolute truth, or at least that's what they tell us. Truth has a little T. There's no capital T truth. Everybody has their own bias, their own perspective, their own, uh, you know, little truth that governs their world. But someday Jerusalem will be the center of all truth when the truth Jesus Christ sits on the throne, the mountain of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, they're referencing Almighty God and His power and His army. And then the holy mountain. We've lost sight of what the word holy means, I think, in our day. Like a lot of words, it's been watered down and we don't understand its significance. But the word holy in Hebrew and Greek just means one of a kind, set apart. Uh, my friend David Fiorazzo was on uh, our program, or I guess I was on his program uh, last week, Worldview Matters TV, and he commented about how when people tell you happy holidays this time of year, you ought to ask them, well, what holiday are you celebrating? You know, there's only one holiday. A holiday means holy day. A holy means one of a kind. You can't have multiple ones of a kind, right? There's only one holy day, and that's the birth of our Savior. And so uh, what a day that's going to be when everybody worships in uh, the holy mountain. Uh, but Jerusalem will become the center of the world's worship. Uh, Zechariah 14 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from one year to year, from year to year, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. We'll come to, back to that in just a moment. But what a day that will be when they're coming, not against Israel, like we read about in all the end times wars passages, but coming to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, just as the boundaries of the nation of Israel will be expounded and there will be topographical changes, Jerusalem itself will be enlarged to make room for the millennial temple that Ezekiel describes in chapters 40 to 48. We're told that Jerusalem will be 18,000 cubits around. That's six miles, a little less than six miles in circumference. Uh, that's way bigger than it is today. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. Uh, and then not only the millennial temple, but in the eternal state. We read about this in Revelation chapter 21. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and it's measured with a reed 12,000 furlongs. That's 1,400 miles on each side and 1,400 miles high. It's a pyramid. Now, what a day that will be when the, the temple is and Jerusalem is enlarged. And then Jerusalem's going to receive a name change. I love this passage in Isaiah 62. The Gentiles, that's the nations, shall see your righteousness, and all kings shall see your glory. And you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Azubach is the Hebrew word, forsaken. Nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate, Shemamach. Remember we said here, you know, when he, when he said over here in Ezekiel 48 that the, 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 it will be the Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah is the Hebrew there, or Yahweh Shammah, uh, literally. Uh, but here it's kind of a play on words. It will not be, uh, it will be Jehovah Shammah or Yahweh Shammah, not Shemamah, which is uh, the, uh, des the word desolate in Hebrew. But instead of forsaken and desolate, you will be called... Hefzibach, meaning my delight is in her. And what a name. Every time God says that name, he's just reminding Israel of how much he loves them. And they're going to be called Beulah. The land of Israel will be called Beulah, which means married. It's a great old gospel hymn, Beulah Land, that talks about that. But Israel's name is going to be changed to Hefzibach and Beulah because the Lord delights in you and you shall be married. Uh, Jews are going to be regathered in the land when Christ comes back. Um, 
we saw a regathering that began in 1948, but that's not what the Bible is talking about here. Even Isaiah 11:11, I don't take it as referring uh, to a prophetic fulfillment. People have been returning to Israel even before it was a nation, and, and certainly I think 1948 was prophetically significant. Now it's got a name, it's got an official statehood, uh, and this is setting the stage for the return of Christ. But the great return to the land will not happen until Christ comes back. Ezekiel talks about this. He says, I will take you from among all the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Jesus himself described in that same passage we looked at earlier where he's going to sit on the throne of his glory. He says, I will send my angels with a great of a sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect. The elect is Israel. Remember we talked a few weeks ago in Romans 9 through 11 about the olive tree and how God chose Israel from the beginning. It's his elect nation. And Christ is going to supernaturally regather the nation of Israel in belief back into land when they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those desolate conditions will be healed as we saw a moment ago with the name change. But uh, Ezekiel 36 says, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. I've talked a lot recently in this little mini-series about how the Bible is coming full circle. And you can't understand the end of the story unless you understand the beginning of the story and you trace it all the way through. It started with creation and it will end with redemption. And that includes redemption of all of God's created uh, universe. And imagine what it's going to be like someday. I mean, just picture Jerusalem today and all the horrifying scenes that we see of the rubble and the devastation and the death and the bloodshed and the bodies and the children. And, and it's just horrific. But someday, a better day is coming, and it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. And in that day, there'll be universal knowledge of the Lord. Uh, we talked about this a moment ago. In the, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Jeremiah the prophet, when he was talking about this new covenant that was ratified at the cross some 500 years after Jeremiah uh, promised it, he says, in that day they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now that can't be talking about today. Because what does he say? No more shall every man teach his neighbor. Well, today in the present age, we're under the great commission, the command of our Lord and Savior, which is to teach everybody about Jesus. Well, if this was in fulfillment today, we would not need to teach everybody about Jesus. And it would be a contradiction, frankly, to, to say that one day everybody's going to know about me, but yet you need to teach people. If everybody knows about him, why do we need to teach them? Now, this is talking about the kingdom age quite clearly. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Uh, what a day that will be. It'll be a time of unimpaired labor. He says, my elect shall enjoy the work of their hands, unlike today. You know, sometimes we do a lot of work and it's all for naught. You know, sometimes you, you, you work hard at something and it doesn't come about like you, you hoped. And it's hard, hard work. But someday we will see the fruits of our labor like never before. There'll be a universal language. Again, the Bible's coming full circle to just like it was before the tower of Babel before the flood when there was a universal language. Zephaniah weighs in on this and says, I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. There'll be no war or conflicts. Imagine that, a time with no war, or as the U.S. military likes to call it, no humanitarian intervention for the sake of oil. Okay, that's, that's war, right? Uh, we read this last week, Isaiah chapter 2. It says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Remember we talked about how the implements of war will be turned into implements of, of gardening and uh, that type of thing. 
no war, no conflicts. And then that's talking about nation against nation. But we're also going to see a time of unprecedented peace throughout society. When, as Isaiah says, the Prince of Peace takes the throne. You know, we think of this verse often this time of year. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We're celebrating the incarnation when the eternal God and creator of the universe sent his eternal son to the earth to solve our problem that we got ourselves into. He created us perfect, uh, but with free will and warned us against uh, the consequences of eating of the forbidden fruit. We marched right over, took a great big bite, and that caused the penalty of sin to come upon us, just as God said it would. And yet at that point, rather than just leave us in our own state of uh, peril and predicament, God took the extraordinary extra step of, in his love and grace and mercy, reaching out and solving our problem by leaving the realm of the eternal, putting on human flesh, living a perfect, holy, sinless life, and walking down that Via Dolorosa up uh, to a hill called Calvary and dying on a cross, a cruel, cruel, painful death, as Paul talks about in Philippians, a death, even the death on a cross. Who can imagine such a horrific death uh, as the Romans put together there. But it was all predicted in the Old Testament that Christ would hang on a tree for the sins of the whole world. He would, as Isaiah said, be bruised for our iniquities, and uh, uh, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Uh, that was God's plan. A child was born, and we celebrate that today. But Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose again, and he offers freely to all the gift of eternal salvation. In the same way that we had free choice whether to rebel against God or not, we have free choice to receive the remedy. God does not force salvation upon anyone, but it's freely offered. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely, the book of Revelation tells us. Jesus said, come unto me all who labor, and I'll give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, that's all you have to do, trust in Christ. It's not about a commitment, a promise, a pledge, a contract. It's not something you do to God or agree with God to do or promise to be good. If that was how we could gain eternal life, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. He died to pay a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay. We have to trust in Jesus Christ. That's the mechanism of receiving the free gift, but it's simple, childlike faith, freely offered, freely received. I hope you've done that today. But the rest of this verse, we often forget it goes on to speak about the second coming of Christ, the second advent, when the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. It will be a time of unprecedented, peaceful society. Hosea speaks about this when he says, Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth. I mean, just imagine what the United States could do to solve so many problems in our culture today. If we didn't have to spend, what is it, two, three, four trillion dollars, I forget, Alan, you may know, in a, in a defense budget, right? If we could take all that money away from defense, which I realize some of you military guys, I mean, you might not have a job, but I bet you'd be okay with that if you didn't have to worry about our country being attacked. And we could reinvest those funds in things that, that could help people. I mean, that's what's going to happen in the kingdom. No more bows and swords. Be gone. We can lie down safely. It'll be a time of true and unprecedented justice. No more will the guilty get off scot-free or the innocent be falsely accused and falsely punished and unjustly punished. Isaiah says justice will dwell in, wilderness, in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. It'll be a time of perfect obedience for believers. You know, Today, we have positional righteousness in Christ. The moment you place your faith in him, as I talked about a moment ago, 
we're justified by faith. Justified means declared righteous positionally. So that once you've placed your faith in Christ, once for all, from that moment on, you are right with a holy God. It's a, it's a legal transaction. It's actually an accounting term, justification. The righteousness of Christ is imputed or charged to our account the moment we believe the gospel, the moment we trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's positional righteousness. But in case you haven't noticed, Christians don't always act righteous. Amen? Do I get an amen? Don't look at your spouse. I'm talking about you, right? We don't always act righteous. Our practice does not always reflect our position. If it did, we'd be perfect. And look, I, I wish we were. I wish the moment we placed our faith in Christ, it was instant perfection, and we just were never sinned again. That would be wonderful. But in God's divine design, we have this struggle of the old man and the new man. The new man takes up residence. We're born again, uh, made alive in Christ. But that does not eradicate that old sin nature. I wish it did. But the very fact that believers sin proves that it doesn't. Paul describes this struggle in passages like 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. When we cater to the flesh, we look pretty ugly. When we cater to the Spirit, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And so the goal is to yield to the Spirit and thereby produce the fruit of the Spirit. But when we don't yield to the Spirit, we're not going to produce that kind of practical righteousness. And that's why it's, it's so troubling to me the way so many people have been taught that you can look at the behavior of someone else and hastily conclude whether they're a Christian or not. Look what he did. Look what she did. Look what they're doing. They're, they're not a Christian. No Christian would act like that. No, no Christian should act like that. But guess what? Sometimes they do. And if we're honest, we all do. In our heart, we all, you know, still struggle with sins that we've been struggling with since the day we got saved. They may not be the so-called big sins that everybody else can see, but jealousy, uh, discontentment, anger, uh, you know, all, all kinds of lust those types of things, and, and that's going to be there until we meet Jesus. And that struggle that Paul describes in Romans 7 is very real. And the goal is for our practical righteousness to, to reflect our positional righteousness in Christ and to, to, to yield to the Spirit. But we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can resist the Spirit. These are all straight out of the scripture. So it's it's baffling to me the way people will so hastily judge the eternal destiny of someone else based on their behavior when it's not by works of righteousness that we got saved to begin with. It's by grace, a free gift. And I'm not in any way condoning or trying to marginalize sin in the life of a believer. Uh, it's a it's a serious thing. It has serious consequences, but our eternal destiny is not conditioned upon our behavior. If it were, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, and, and, and that completely eliminates grace. But back to the characteristics of the kingdom. Someday in the kingdom, we won't have that struggle anymore. There will be perfect obedience. Ezekiel says, In that day I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. What a day that will be. And this is talked about in many passages throughout the Old Testament. Hosea, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. The kingdom will also be a time of universal worship. The entire ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. From the rising of the sun even to, the, to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. My name shall be great among the nations, Malachi uh, tells us. I love this next verse from Zechariah chapter 8. In the, in, thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language, meaning every nation, uh, every different nation, 
Because there will still be nations in the kingdom, even though it's a one-world system with Christ on the throne. There will be nations that come up to Jerusalem, the chosen nation, to worship Almighty God. But listen to what he says. In those days in the kingdom, ten men from every language of nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. I mean, today, you got people grasping the arm of the Jewish people to haul them into torturous chambers, to murder them, to hold them prisoner. But someday they're going to grasp their seat and say, can we please go with you? Show us your God. Bring us up. to. We want to meet Jesus Christ. What a day that'll be. Uh, the temple will be rebuilt. Uh, Haggai has a lot to say about this. Uh, in, in, in one of Zechariah's contemporaries in that day, remember the temple was built, but it was still not full of its uh, glory days. But someday, he says, I will shake the nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations. That's Jesus Christ. And I will fill this temple with glory. The glory of this temple will be greater than the former temple when the, when the glory, when the temple is rebuilt. And then the Shekinah glory will return. Uh, Ezekiel says, the glory of the Lord came into the temple. What a day. What a day that will be. See, today we are supposed to be God's image bearers. We are, if you know the Lord and you're walking in the Spirit, we are reflecting the goodness of God, drawing people to us, setting a good example, a light on a hill, as Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Someday the glory of the temple will shine and emanate from Jesus Christ himself sitting in the temple. There'll be a revival of the sacrificial system. You know, this. I've talked about this before, uh, and we talked about it at the conference this week. By the way, the pre-trib conference, all the speakers' messages are posted. I believe they're posted. If not yet, they, they will be soon, but I think they're already there. It's pre-trib.org. Pre-trib.org is the website. And Dr. Randall Price, who I've had on our program, I've known him for almost 30 years now, dear friend, um, he gave a great message uh, you know, addressing the objection of why people think they just can't imagine a sacrificial system being uh, reinstituted. And if those who think that, it's because they don't understand the plain, literal, normal sense of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. They think that the church has replaced Israel and we don't ever, Israel's done. That's not true at all. The fact of the matter is the sacrificial system in the Old Testament before the cross didn't save anybody. It, that's very clear from the book of Hebrews. You're saved in every age the same way by faith. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was saved not because he paid tithes to Melchizedek, not because he made sacrifices on Mount Moriah. He was saved because he had faith, Genesis 15, 6. Every single human being from Adam forward is saved the same way by faith. The sacrificial system didn't save anybody. There were Jews that dutifully kept the sacrifices, and they're in hell today because they never trusted in Yahweh. They never placed their faith like Father Abraham did in God. They were just going through the motions. No, the purpose of the sacrificial system was not to save people. It was to give a picture, a foretaste of the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. It was a shadow, as the writer of Hebrews would later say, of the substance to come. So yes, Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, but just as in prior to the time of Christ, the, the sacrifices looked forward with a little bit of a, a fogginess to them and a shadow obscuring the full grandeur of it all, in the kingdom someday when the sacrificial system is reinstituted, just imagine how powerful and meaningful it's going to be, not only to the Jewish nation, but to everyone as they're bringing up these sacrifices to the temple, knowing in unequivocal full color terms that it represents 
Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world and the King of kings and Lord of lords. So uh, there's no question if you believe the Bible in its plain literal sense that the sacrifices are going to be reinstituted, and it really should not trouble us because it's all memorial uh, sacrifices anyway. But Dr. Randall Price has a great discussion of this uh, at the pre-trib conference. You should check out that message. They're all free at the, at the pre-trib website. But it says, uh, even them... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. This also includes the restoration of Sabbath and ritual feasts. We mentioned this earlier, uh, how uh, all the nations will come to Jerusalem year after year to worship the Lord and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's not some secret code language. (laughs) That's pretty simple, plain language. That's what's going to happen during the kingdom. One of my favorite characteristics, though, is this one. Satan will be bound during the millennium. Hallelujah. You know, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. The whole world, the Bible tells us, presently is under the sway of the wicked one. But it won't always be that way. A better day is coming. And during the kingdom, Christ is going to be, uh, I mean, Satan is going to be bound up in prison. Revelation tells us, When Christ comes back, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, the abyss, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. So people often ask me, well, what about his fallen angels, his demons, his other evil celestial beings? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going to happen to them. I I think we can reasonably assume it's, it's likely that they will also be put in prison. But even if they're not, The fact that their leader is in prison is going to create chaos. They're going to be so disorganized and not know what to do, especially with Christ sitting on the throne, ruling with a rod of iron, striking them down in an instant. It's going to be a time of unprecedented peace and justice. And I've often wondered, you know, if during the millennium, the prison that Satan is in is going to have visiting hours. Because I don't know about you, but I'd love to to pay him a visit and to look at him across the glass there and just say... See, you got what's coming to you. You know, na 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 na. You know, just you can't you can't touch me. You know, what a day, what a day. And he is a big loser. I always like to remind Satan of that. Uh, Wendy always gets a little nervous when I do because it it kind of provokes. It's like poking the bear, she says. But look, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Satan is a loser. He's already lost the battle. Jesus has won the victory, and we need to remind him of that. We don't need to be sheepish. You know, uh, he walks about like a roaring lion looking for whom he might, might devour, but we need to run towards that roar. Now more than ever, we don't need to cower in the background hoping we're okay. We need to be strong and remind him uh, uh, that he is a great big loser. So he'll be bound, but then he will be released at the end of the thousand years for one final instantaneous battle, at which point he will then be cast into the lake of fire, which Jesus tells us was prepared precisely for the devil and his angels. That's what it was created for. Um, we're going to have a restoration of longevity. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of other characteristics we could look at. The predominant righteousness, uh, restoration of the Edenic conditions. I touched on that, but there are several passages. The removal of the harmful environmental effects. Al Gore will finally be happy, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, he probably won't be there to enjoy it, but uh, that's, uh, who knows? I hope he comes to faith. Um, there'll be an increase in daylight, there'll be economic prosperity, there'll be universal access to Israel, all kinds of characteristics 
the Bible talks about. But the longevity, we get this from Isaiah 65, uh, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days. See, things are going to return to what they were like, again, in the early days of creation, where people lived to be 800, 900 years old. J. Vernon McGee put it well. He said, quote, the longevity of life that predated the patriarchs will be one of the features of the kingdom. People will live a long time. There won't be any need for senior citizen homes because there won't be any senior citizens. Amen. All of us will be young. A better day is coming. And as a takeaway, let me just give you this challenge. What does the kingdom challenge us to do? What does the promise of a future messianic kingdom mean for us today? Well, first of all, it means anticipation. I hope that you're not consumed with the here and the now so much that you forget what's coming. Here in the present, hope in the future. Here in the present, hope in the future. Paul says, look for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Anticipation, alertness. We need to be on guard, paying attention, especially in these great last days, the closer we get to the return of the Lord. One of my favorite passages that I often cite in when signing my first uh, Spirit of the Antichrist book, Volume 1, is 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. But we'll pick it up in verse 4. You, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. As one of my mentors said years ago, the last thing the world needs is more sleepy Christians. We need to be awake and alert. And then finally, announcement. Uh, the, ch- the kingdom challenges us to tell others, to wake others up, to tell people that don't know the Lord Jesus about Him. That's why we have those gospel tracts that I mentioned during the announcement time. Pick up a handful. Give them out. Time is short. Uh, that, that Christmas devotional that we've got out there, pick that up. Give it to others. It clearly gives the gospel. Every one of the contributors, I can personally attest, is clear and accurate on the gospel presentation and in that book. So here's the takeaway. Be alert. Look for Christ's return and tell others he's coming and, 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 and what a day that will be. A better day is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the, the, the word from your word. Uh, may it just really invigorate and, and, and just encourage us and embolden us and put a smile on our face as we think about what lies ahead. I know there's plenty that we can see and feel and touch today that is unpleasant, that's unhappy, that's discouraging. But Lord, it won't always be this way. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, we pray as we celebrate the birth of your Son and our Savior that we would remember not only the first advent, but the second advent as well, when he comes as victorious warrior and king of kings. And Lord, as always, if there's someone listening today, that does not know your Son and our Savior, I pray that the gospel that went forth would indeed be the power of God to salvation to those who believe it. It would convict them of their need for a Savior and uh, just encourage them and draw them to you in simple childlike faith. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Let's stand for one more.